You know, we, we sang about, we sang about uh, all that we have, um, our will, our treasure, our talents, our voice, that that would be used by the Lord for, for his will and his purposes. And uh, that little girl we heard about was in that kind of a test. But, but before you can answer that test rightly, before you can know what to do with whatever we have, we need to answer a more fundamental question. I didn't realize it, but there was a concert scheduled in Portland for this week. Thursday night, I think it was. It just got canceled because of an illness. But the who was going to be playing in Portland. Now, these guys are like 70 years old, and they're still rocking. Can you believe it? Wow. Who? Yeah. But, but they're best known for a song that somebody joked was actually the songwriter's intention to see how many times you get the lead singer to say the band's name um, in the midst of a song. But the song poses a question. Who are you? Who, 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 who? No, I really want to know. Who are you, right? And it's a cute, clever, and very economical little song. You don't have to use very many words in the, in the song. But in the turbulent late 60s and early 70s, there was this, and I love this word, and anti-establishmentarianism. That's a real word. There was this anti-establishmentarianism that impacted the music scene. But by the mid-70s, some of those early rockers, those counterculture who sang against the establishment had become a new establishment themselves. They had become part of that, uh, kind of crept up on them. They had become what they were singing against. It actually made an opening. If you followed these kind of things, I really didn't, but uh, they, they made an opening for punk rock to become the new anti-establishment voice. And in the midst of all that, well, one of those early classic bands, The Who, they came out with a song. Who are you? It's a song, are they asking somebody else? Or rather, are they questioning their own identity? Who are you really? In their success, they had just become millionaires. And then, just having gone through an all-day of negotiations, meetings that made each member of the band a millionaire, Peter Townsend goes out and he gets drunk. When he gets drunk, he runs into a couple of these new punk wave rockers from a group called the Sex Pistols. And if you've heard of that group, I hope not. (laughs) But, um... (laughs) Realize that... (laughs) realized in, 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 uh, as he's talking with those guys and they are almost, they see him, Peter Townsend from The Who as their hero and, and he realizes he's become, that they're the new anti-establishment and he has become that establishment that he's saying against. This internal angst in the song is expressing something of Townsend's own internal identity crisis. It's interesting also, in a lesser-known third verse, I'll talk about a little bit later, but express some of a spiritual hunger and longing for unconditional love that was also part of this whole identity struggle. You see, Townsend touched on a nerve. Who are you? Who are you, really? He sings of sleeping in a doorway on a street like a nobody. Who are you? He sings of those 11-hour business meetings that seem to accomplish everything, but he feels like it accomplished nothing. In fact, it was his ruin. He feels that afterwards he sold out his principles. 
in the business negotiations. Who are you? Can you identify with that kind of uh, identity crisis? The things that you're pressed to do in the midst of the business or the work of the day seem to challenge who it is that you have said or claimed to be. In the face of a loving and yet holy God who loves us, and yet to whom we are accountable, who are you? Who are you? When you know that you're really a complete mess, as he was sober enough to realize on that day, that I can't really hold myself together, then as the song says, who, who are you? You see, who are you gives direction because identity matters. It's out of our identity. It's out of who that I am that flows everything else that I will then do. What will I do with what I have? What I have, I'm going to use in, in, in accordance with who I understand that I am. Who I am or maybe even whose I am. Sometimes we take it for granted, but we, kind of borrow the line one more time, we really ought to know who are we. We might not be specific enough. Our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going through a series in 1 Peter. We've been in this for a, for a month or so now. It'll be a few months more. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find us on page uh, 1014, 1015, right in there. And um, uh, if you're, if you're, I hope you're following along in your Bible, but I also put something else in your, in your handout and your insert in the bulletin. On the back, I put the text and I did something weird with it that I want to take just a few minutes to explain. So I want to explain a little bit what's there. And uh, then out of that, we've got um, some, some points to consider out of what's there. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. I want us to put it on the screen here. I want you to follow along with that insert if you have it. It'll, it'll contain the verses and you can read along there just as well. Let's read and before we read, let's pray. Father, open your word to us. Help us to see not merely interesting things and not merely to answer a question here or there, but Father, help us to see your point what it is that you are telling us about who we are. Father, that we might know who we are in Jesus our Savior, and out of that might flow the answers to what then will I do? What then matters most? And give us the courage out of who we are to be like that little girl and to boldly declare our faith in Jesus so that others would know him too. Father, open your word to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 10 He has just said for us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander like newborn babes to long for the sincere milk of the word, spiritual milk, so that we might grow by it. We might grow in what? In who we now are. If we have been indeed born again by the living and abiding word, that word which abides forever and which has given us forever eternal life. If that's true... Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as then as you come to him, and, he, and he's assuming it is true. He's not challenging that off the top. He's assuming that that is true. In this first half, as you see this angle, and I, I should, I guess, just describe the, the parallel. It's a, it's a chiastic structure. It's a parallel structure, and the parallels are from the outside, and they move inward. They move inward. We'll look into that. We'll see some of those. You can circle them on your own, but don't get distracted just yet. Let's just hear the word. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying or appointing in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, their rejection of him, and a rock of offense. They are offended at him. They are revulsed by him. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined, appointed to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the glories of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the passage, there are several parallels. You may have noticed them. I want to I I, I just show you them, just how you see the, how the passage goes together, because how the passage goes together determines where the center of it is, what the real point is, and out of that, what we need to, what we need to know about that. So first of all, look at the uh, top two verses, bottom two verses. If you have tasted the Lord his good, you have received his mercy. You came to him. You were not, but you came to him. You didn't belong, but now you have come to him. The one who was rejected by men. You are now God's people. They were not God's people, but they are now God's people. So parallels in the beginning and end regarding who we are because of believing in Jesus. Okay, let's look at the next one. Come down to the next verses. Because we have believed in him, he says, you are a spiritual house, a temple, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. Why does he say all that? Well, Peter, remember, is writing to Jewish Christians who are dispersed. They are scattered about. They have been those that have been scattered as Jewish people in Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire ever since Babylon was destroyed. Now, no, the Roman Empire didn't exist then. It grew into the Roman Empire. But, but um, in all of these places, in all of these provinces, and these are the, some of these same people were the ones that returned to Jerusalem at Pentecost because Jewish people were supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three feasts. And if they didn't make all three, then sometime, somewhere in their lives, they needed to get to Jerusalem, kind of like Muslims today go to Mecca. So many of these people had journeyed to Jerusalem. They were there for Pentecost, for that great feast. And then they heard the, the 12 speaking, remember, in all of their different languages. Languages from all of these different provinces that they were scattered to and had come from. So you have Jewish communities, Jewish um, subcultures in all of these places. And Peter is now writing to them. But there are Christians within those Jewish communities. And those Christians are now being ostracized from the Jewish community. Now, now understand this. The Jewish community doesn't fit in the broader culture. They're a subset. They're pulled apart. They're somewhat marginalized. And now these Jewish Christians are being marginalized, ostracized, pushed aside, losing jobs, losing friends, sometimes losing family because they believe in Jesus. They name the name of Jesus Christ. They did what that little girl did. And so they're being pushed out. They're being further marginalized. And they're being told by this Jewish culture that we're God's real people 
because we have the temple. Well, actually, we don't have the temple anymore. We have the sacrifice. We actually, we don't have the sacrifice anymore. Now we have synagogue, but we have the synagogue and you can't come anymore. We're God's real people. That's what they're hearing. But God says, no, 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 no. Through Peter, he says, you are a holy priesthood. He's going to say down later, you're a royal priesthood. Where does that come from? That's, that comes from Hebrews, where Jesus is better than any of the Old Testament priests because he's not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedek priest. He's a king priest. He is sovereign and priest. And, and now he says that we are that. In Christ, we share his royal priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices as compared to what? Well, there's several verses in, um, in the Old Testament that approach this reliance on the mere pattern of bringing sacrifices. What kind of sacrifice does God want? What kind of reli- religious ritual will please God? Let's take a look. First of all, I think in Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. I want to just put these on the screen just to save us a little bit of time because I, 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 I'd, I'd love to unpack this with you all day, but I think we have a, a lunch and a meeting to get to. Oh, that there were mon- God says concerning his temple, oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain, in futility, in emptiness, in empty ritual. It doesn't really mean anything. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. Wait a minute, I thought God wanted offerings. I thought he's, he, he, he described in great detail just the kind of animal sacrifice offerings he wanted. He says, I wish somebody just closed the door because you guys have missed it completely. You are filling squares, going through the ritual instead of believing in me. Let's see another place, Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. You know verse 8, perhaps you've heard it before, but keep it in context. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What offering should I bring? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings? Maybe with a year old calf? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? How much could I bring that would finally be enough? Ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Oh, my goodness. Now we're getting dangerously close to the real truth. Something that God would do. His son for us. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What could I possibly bring? He seems to know that none of these offerings could ever be enough. They only point to the one who will. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Finally, Psalm 51, one more of these sacrifice places. What kind of sacrifice does God desire? Oh, Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For I will not delight in sacrifice. Sorry, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, that is the sacrifice that you will not despise. Oh, they had missed it. They had go, they had, it had devolved into a ritual sacrifice that no longer meant anything anymore because it wasn't anticipating, it wasn't looking in faith to God's provision of a sacrifice for them. They were filling squares thinking that they gained God's approval by the things that they did. God said, I'm tired of it all. But a broken and contrite spirit, a heart of confession, a heart that confesses its guilt and need for God to save us. He said that God will not turn away. 
he will not despise. We are the ones who are spiritual priesthood in Jesus who offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, one more parallel, this, 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 this whole cornerstone thing. Let's look at the next. He, he makes a big deal about this cornerstone, chosen and precious. In fact, he's quoting several places. He's quoting Isaiah 8. He's quoting Isaiah 26. He's quoting Isaiah, uh, or rather Psalm 117. And uh, I could read those very briefly. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed, will not have to hide, will not have to run away. Psalm 117, I thank you that you have answered me, and you, God, have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 117 or Psalm 118. I think it's 117 in Hebrew. Sorry, Psalm 118 in your Bibles. Psalm, or Isaiah 8, verse 14. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Isaiah 8 is speaking to God's people when they have refused to believe God. They have refused to believe God's provision. Isaiah says, okay, fine, but... It's going to be a stone of stumbling and offense to you. You're going to stumble in unbelief, and you're going to fall. I'm going to set up a foundation stone, but you are going to stumble against it. Isaiah predicts that in advance, and it ends up happening. And that kind of leads into the fourth parallel I wanted to show you, and one of the most difficult things about this passage. Something about this passage that probably makes you uncomfortable, and that is in verse 8. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, he says in verse 6, I'm laying, I'm appointing a foundation. It's the same Greek word later on in verse 8. At the end of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word. They don't believe it as they were destined to do. So that's the point that was earlier made in the earlier parallels. They did not believe. They did not obey the word concerning the Savior. And he says, in verse 7, the central point is about you who believe compared to those who do not believe. Because I'm laying a stone to be believed on. I have appointed a salvation. And now it sounds like at the end of that verse, and God also appointed some would believe, and also God destined some to not believe and be lost. And that sounds harsh. Maybe we should consider it this way. There is a twofold appointment. God has made an appointment, and because God has appointed a Savior, because God said humanity is in desperate need, humanity needs a Savior, there's no other way, and because humanity needs a Savior, I am going to appoint Jesus as the only Savior for humanity. He is the only one that can be big enough. He is the only one that can be sufficient to save humanity. So Jesus, my own son, I give as that Savior. By so appointing Jesus as the Savior, as making the cornerstone the very ones who the apostles told the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 that they, the builders, had rejected, they said, God has given no other name under heaven among men, whereby people might be saved. Jesus is the only one. So by appointing Jesus as the Savior, as the cornerstone, he also appoints anybody who does not believe in him to their condemnation. So there's a twofold consequence of the appointing of the Savior. 
Now, there would be a single consequence if there was no Savior appointed. If God never appointed a Savior, there would be no salvation for any of us. We would all be lost in the fall of Adam and in our own sin that flows out of that. But God has appointed a Savior. And because he appoints a Savior, there's a twofold consequence for those who believe and for those who don't believe. For those who believe, the honor. God will honor. That leads us to the first point. Out of this passage, the center of the passage, you caught that pattern. That pattern is like an arrow pointing to the center, and the center is this. There's a crucial question before all of humanity, who are you? Do you believe? Or are you among those who do not believe? It's one or the other. And it's not, well, I kind of believe. I believe part of that. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly in, but I'm not sure about, do you believe in him or not? Is Jesus who God said he was, or is he not? Do you fall upon that cornerstone, that foundation stone, or do you stumble over it? Because you can't quite buy it. That's the central point that the text focuses us down to, and now that leaves us with several things to consider. First of all, this one name, no other name, we may be told that our viewpoint is on the wrong side of history. We may be told that our faith does not fit, that, that we're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of eternity, but if history eventually becomes history, eternity will still be eternity. When history is over, eternity will have hardly started. And God's best, God's honor and glory in the glorious one is for those who believe. God's honor, God's glory is for those who believe. It might not be evident just yet. You might not see it just yet, but God has glory and honor and immortality for you who believe. No eye has seen. The scripture says no eye has seen nor has an ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of the imagination of man what it is, how grand it is, what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, his honor is for those who believe. That's how, that's how he has appointed it. What is that like? It's hard for us to grab hold of. He said we, we, we can't imagine it. So let's, let's do the impossible, shall we? Let's, let's have an exercise in futility this morning. Won't that be fun? Let's just try to imagine a little bit. Imagine a time when you were doing what it is you felt you were made to do. You were in the zone. Everything was great. When you, when you swung that club and you heard that titanium driver hit the ball, and you knew it was gone. Maybe it wasn't softball in high school and the crack of the ball on that bat. Wow, you were in the zone and nothing could go wrong. Maybe it was that project you were working on and everything just came together. Maybe it was when you, you, you came into the group and in the midst of the group there was this problem and nobody could see the way out of it and it was just clear and obvious to you and they're like so glad you're here. And you were able to do the kind of thing you were made to do. Everything was going right for you. Have you ever had that little taste of that? Okay, now add to that a time when the companionship you were enjoying with others was at its best. There was nothing in the way. There was no agendas. There was no secrets. There was no guilt. There was no need for carefulness. No need to hide part of myself. There was no self-awareness. It was just that sweet companionship that you enjoyed with your wife. 
or for you, your husband was your hero. You were so, so glad that, 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 that he had chosen you and wanted to marry you, and, and the two of you were just so sweet together. Or it was that, that, that warm companionship between friends and buddies, and you just loved sharing time together. There's nothing in the way. We're bros. Okay, I'm in the zone. These are my people. Add to that a time when you were on a spiritual high, a closeness with God, basking in his love. You knew that he loved you. You were resting on his promise in, in, a, in a grateful, yielded trust. You knew that God would be there. You knew that God had you. You were able to freely worship him in church. All of a sudden, it was as if all these other people weren't around. It was between, I, it was, I would just had a backup choir as I'm worshiping and singing praise to God in heaven. And he is hearing and it's almost like I can see or sense his countenance. I feel his presence. There was a time of sweet, quiet devotion in your prayer closet because we just saw the War Room movie. Maybe it's a big closet, a little closet, I don't know. But in that place where there you were in devotion with God and, and in prayer and you could pray so openly, so freely, and you knew that you could bring these things before God. God had it. All of the anxiety melted away. All of that together. If you can imagine it. All of that together from being in the zone and what I was made to do in companionship, unhindered fellowship with others, in a spiritual closeness with God, nothing between me and my Savior. All of that together is just a taste of what it will be. It's just nibbling around the edges of what we will experience in eternity once sin is completely removed out of the picture. That's the honor and the glory and the fullness of blessing that God has for those who are His, those who believe in Jesus. His honor, His glory, His best his purpose for you is the best of life in relationship with him and with others without any sin getting in the way. That's what Jesus died to accomplish. That's what we long for and wait for by faith. And Jesus will share with us who believe in him his restoration of all things. That's what's ahead of us for those who believe. That's the center of it. Peter says, don't be discouraged. Don't let anybody discourage you away from that. That's the center of everything. God, his honor, his glory is for those who believe in him. Next, verses 6 to 8. Eternity, that which I just described, all of that which God has for us who believe is on God's terms. God has, has set God has appointed. God has established how things are going to be. It's not up for grabs. Eternity is on God's terms. God's blessings is God's to bestow, and it's on his terms. There's a civil religion of the day. It's a religion of, quote, tolerance and, and compromises as sacrament, it's been said. Don't bow at that altar. Some people think that faith in Jesus is intolerant and should be excluded from any public interaction. That seems a little intolerant. But we know that by faith, God has established, God has said, God has appointed, and it is non-negotiable. God has set his son on his holy hill of Zion. And he has said that all who reject him will stumble in their own fallenness. Here's the thing about tolerance. 
God is very tolerant. Do you believe that? God, is, God has tolerated us for a long time, hasn't he? God has tolerated humanity's foolishness. God has tolerated humanity's futile rebellion. For how long? And how much longer? We don't know. It amazes me as I think about it, as I look what's going on, and as, as I read the headlines that, that just show our own human engineering, how humanity is now trying to recreate humanity themselves by our own intelligence, by our own scientific achievements. God is completely irrelevant to us, so it would seem. And yet the Lord in heaven laughs, Psalm 2 says. God is very tolerant. But don't mistake God's tolerance in timing for some big tent type of tolerance in believing. He says it's all about his son. God has clearly established how things will be. Eternity is on his terms. We don't want to be annoying. We don't want to be arrogant. But don't be intimidated. Believing in Jesus is the right side of history because believing in Jesus is the only one is the only way that one gets to the right side of eternity. There is no other way. Thirdly, don't let others deny your identity. Remember what I told you about that Jewish community? And they said, no, no, it's a, we're the ones. You guys are excluded. You guys are, you guys are, are uh, you know, you're, you, you guys are behind the times. You guys aren't keeping up. God is doing this new thing now. We've got synagogue. This is our own private club, and you're not a part of it because you won't go along. You keep bringing up Jesus. We, in Christ, have more than a shadow. We are not merely religious. We have a relationship with God. We are a spiritual house. We are the temple. That's what he means by spiritual house. We are a, a, a holy and royal priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices as those who are uniquely God's people. It's not about being baptized or being a member. And, you know, you, you intrinsically know that. In fact, for some of us, that's one of the reasons that we resist being baptized or becoming a church member officially because it's not supposed to be about that. That sounds like religion. But while we don't value that as highly as our identity in Christ, still don't let others cheat you out of, out of their identity. Don't let the religious trappings of some cheat you out of something like being baptized, which is something we share with saints all the way from the beginning of God's church. Something Jesus himself gave us that we continue to do 2,000 years later. How many things do we know that we do as the church did? It's not music. Relax, it wasn't music 50 years ago or 100 years ago even. But this baptism thing, that's something we do like they did. They went under the water, they came back up out of the water. And, that, and they proclaimed... I have died in Jesus Christ. I was buried with him, but he rose from the dead and I live in him to walk in newness of life. And that's the testimony of every Christian. So why not step into that age old acting out? Don't let anybody cheat you out of that just out of a fear of merely being religious. Don't, don't let anybody cheat you out of this thing, church membership. What is it about? It's a declaring that this is God's family that he's given me. God has put me in his own family, God's house. And here it is. This group of people in this place, they are God's family. I'm part of God's own family. And that's not just a place where I drop in now and again. It's not a spiritual consumerism and I get something spirit, some spiritual goods or services at this place or that place. No, I belong. It's identity. Don't let anybody cheat you out of that. 
out of the, out of the fear, the oppress, oppression of religion and ritual. Don't let others deny your identity. Don't let the culture tell you that your identity comes from any other stuff. What are those spiritual sacrifices? If we are a priesthood, if we offer sacrifices, what does that look like? Okay, it's not, it's not lambs, it's not calves, it's not, it's not goats, and you're all glad for that. Nobody brought a sheep with them to church this morning, did they? We're all glad for that. So what is it that we offer? What are these spiritual sacrifices? Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Let's turn to a few of these. I didn't put these on the screen, so we can turn to them in our Bibles. Hebrews 13. If it's easier for you just to, just instead of turning and getting lost in pages, just listening carefully, that's wonderful. Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 15 and 16. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. What you have done this morning, what we do this morning, by sharing together our, what we have for the common good and for the good of others, what we do in, in sacrificing the fruit of our lips, praise to God, that is a sacrifice of worship, God says. You have come, in a sense, in a temple, the body of Christ, and you have lifted up sacrifices already. That's what we've been doing as a priesthood to God. There's another passage in, in, um, in, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, talks about sharing with missionaries. Oh, we had a missionary here today. Well, sharing with those on mission and encouraging them with our goods, that is a sacrifice. We read in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, able to confess. Confessing in private prayer, sometimes something comes clear in our own devotions when I'm reading the Bible for myself and I'm in prayer with God. And to, rather than to hide that, rather than to rationalize that and explain it to God, I confess, I agree with God about this thing. That is a sacrifice, that sacrifice of a broken spirit, a contrite heart, willing to confess to God we heard something at the men's retreat last week. It was a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He talked about this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Because he said this, Bonhoeffer said, the grace in my brother is stronger than the grace that is in me. And the grace that is in me is stronger than the grace that is in my brother. Don't you just hate those nuisance quotes that seem to contradict themselves? What is that all about? The grace that is in my brother is, greater, is stronger than the grace that is in me. The grace that is in me is stronger than the grace that is in my brother. I need to confess my sins to somebody to, so they too can pray with me because when they preach the gospel to me about the forgiveness of my guilt that is in Jesus, it is stronger than when I preached it to myself. And when they confess to me and I'm able to proclaim the forgiveness, remind them of what they know to be true about Jesus, then hearing it from me outside of themselves, somehow that grace is stronger than when they told it to themselves. We need to do that for one another. After that message that night, some of us just bundled up in the car and left. We were done. We were out of there. Well, we had to get back here was the was the deal. But some of our group, a bunch of them, I heard later, heard about this, that they got, went and gathered together. And what, you know what they did? They were sharing together, 
confessing together and praying for one another. They stepped right into what had been described. The next morning, the speaker even unfolded a little more some of the stuff that had gone on in his own life, confessing that with us. And out of that, giving this group of 1,500 men the courage to be willing to confess their sins, that others would pray for their sins, that God himself would, would, would press upon them his forgiveness in Jesus Christ and free their hearts. The spiritual sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit that with, with that God is well pleased. And finally, to live out the will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present to your bodies a living sacrifice in all that we do and how we help and how we serve and how we encourage. That's what that song we sang earlier. Take my life, take my lips, take my treasure, Take the gifts and abilities and talents that I have. Lord, use this for yourself. I give you me as a living sacrifice. That's what it's about. That is a spiritual sacrifice that we as a royal priesthood in Christ offer to the true and the living God. Those are the spiritual sacrifices we can offer. And finally... The last question this passage puts to us, all of this that we've talked about, the glory of all of us, the goodness that God has that only comes to us on his terms through his son, it opens up the way for that kind of forgiveness that I've just been talking about. All of that begs the question that the passage started and ended with. It started and ended on the same terms, verses 3 and 4 and in verse 10. Have you received God's mercy? Have you tasted of God's love, his undeserved goodness? Have you come to the one whom others rejected? Are you one of God's people? Have you received God's mercy? All of us started out as not his people. Have you become his people? All of us started out not having received mercy. Have you received mercy? In the beginning, I mentioned a lost verse from the who. And because the passage starts and ends the same way, this is the time to bring that in. That verse is only included in some longer versions of the song. It wasn't on the single. It was only on the album. It comes after a long reflective interlude, and it seems to express a spiritual longing that reminds me of the garden in Genesis. It says, there's a place where I know you walked. The love falls from the trees. My heart is like a broken cup. I only feel right on my knees. I never knew that was in that song. I don't claim to know just what Townsend was thinking of here. I, I, I do know that all humanity longs for something that was lost in the garden. Whether we know what it is that we're longing for or not, all humanity is made to be in relationship with God. We want that, and we seem to know we've lost it. My heart is like a broken cup. I only feel right on my knees. The verse goes on to express a longing for undeserved, unconditional love. I I spill out like a sewer pipe, yet still receive your kiss. How can I measure up to anyone new after such a love as this? Again, I don't mean to suggest that Peter Townsend came to Jesus. From what I read, he was a follower eventually of an Eastern mystic. But folks, generally, universally, broken human hearts wonder who we really are. They long for what only God can truly give, that only he can satisfy. Peter has put a question before us in this passage. 
It's a question that he reminds those who truly believe. He reminds them who they believe and what it means. It reminds you of what that little girl knew in the story Doug shared with us. Have you come to him, the one others reject, to God's own precious son? If you have, then there's a new answer to the question. Who are you? That answer is this. In Jesus, you are being built into God's temple. His spirit lives in you. You are his royal priesthood. You represent to others the sacrifice for sins that God has provided. You're the one to show that to others, just like a priest in the Old Testament did, so that they can believe also. You make an eternal difference. Who are you? In Jesus, you are an offerer of spiritual sacrifices in your worship that heaven itself rejoices in. In your obedience, in your giving to others, God sees These are the sacrifices that actually bring God joy. As you grow, you show God's excellencies. You show his glory. You show his likeness. You show others what your father is like because you are his child. That's who you are. You can show anyone forgiveness and mercy because you have been there. You've gotten it from the source. You are in Jesus. And that, my friend, has made all of the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for who you have made us to be in Jesus that allows us, that opens the way up for us to make these spiritual sacrifices. Lord, as we come together and as we regather now, we gather to give the sacrifice of praise, the very fruit of our lips. Lord, might we do this in this song now, recognizing that heaven hears. Lord, we come now, and whether it's that oasis insert, whether it's asking about um, uh, something else, whether it's a, a prayer shared on the white card in that offering now, whether it's the very fruit out of our labors that we give back to you, though it could be given many other places, it could be used for many things, but we give it here. We give it now because we know that you have taught us we need to sacrifice something in giving for the sake of others to taste something of what what it was that Jesus did for us father might you help us to see these things that you call us to do not merely as obedience to keep our lives straight not at all but rather lord that we might live our lives and worship to you out of who you have made us to be in Jesus this we ask in